Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of self-harm. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. If you know your automobile history, there's a good chance you've already heard about Liz Carmichael, the visionary behind a failed three-wheeled car in the 1970s. But unless you've done your homework, I think you probably only know half the story, because so much of Liz's truth was twisted, and the rest was just lost. Liz went down as a con artist who abused the system to escape jail time, but really she was a woman who refused to play by society's rules. The full story was overshadowed by attacks on her gender and motives. Yes, she did commit white-collar crimes, that's not up for debate. But her story is about so much more than that. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we'll meet Liz Carmichael, a businesswoman who could sell pretty much anything and did just that. First, we'll learn how she started out with small-time swindles before graduating to the biggest con of her life. Next week, we'll follow Liz as her fraudulent crimes unravel into a stunning downfall. Then we'll discuss her depiction by the media and how they got it all so wrong. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Before we even get into this story, I want to take a step back and give you a little context. Liz Carmichael's gender identity greatly influenced her public image and ultimate fate, not to mention the ways it affected her own life. She identified as transgender, which opened the doors for joy and discrimination alike. 
Life for transgender people has never been easy. In addition to blatant harassment and violence, transgender people have endured smaller, insidious abuses throughout history. This was certainly the case throughout the 20th century when Liz's story begins. One of those inequities is that some local governments erased transgender people's records, birth and death certificates, marriage licenses, you name it. Cities and towns across America were so often embarrassed by the trans members of their communities, they didn't want to be associated with them. So they'd destroy the documents and pretend they'd never existed. To this day, Liz's birth certificate can't be found. Now, we don't know for sure if that's what happened here, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was. That's why Liz's early life is hard to corroborate. All we have are her own recollections and whatever those who knew her claim to remember. The thing is, both narratives are pretty unreliable because who can look back on their own childhood without being a little bit biased? Even Liz's birth year is up for debate. Some say she was born in 1938, but it's most likely that she was born in 1927 in Jasonville, Indiana. If she were telling the story, she'd say her family was dirt poor and that she'd envied the other townspeople who drove fancy cars and lived in beautiful homes. However, according to people who knew her at the time, Liz's family were the rich ones who lived in a nice brick home. Whatever the truth, the fact remains that from a young age, Liz felt like something was missing. She wasn't comfortable in her own skin, though she didn't have the words for it yet. She searched for answers about herself. That led her to do certain things, like try on dresses with her cousins. The other girls no doubt found the whole thing funny, but for Liz, it was much more than a childish game. It was the very first step toward accepting her own truth. Before we continue with Liz's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Charlotte Tate, most trans people feel pretty early on in their lives that they belong to another gender group. They might not know how to voice those feelings or what to do about them, but they're there. Psychologist Christina Olson backs this idea up. She says that people who go on to transition later in life generally already have a strong sense of who they are as kids. As she says, children change their gender because of their identities. They don't change their identities because they change their gender. Unfortunately, in Liz's town in the 30s, there weren't a ton of resources available to help her understand her experience. So Liz kept her thoughts on gender to herself, but she did pick up other lessons that would serve her well throughout her life. One of these life lessons came in third grade when her teacher read her a story. It was about a spider trying to leap from one ledge to another to make its web. Each time it fell, then it got up and jumped again. The story really resonated with Liz. She took away the age old lesson. If at first you don't succeed, try again. Liz applied that mentality as she got older. In high school, she got into boxing. She liked to think she was tough, even though she got knocked down a lot. Still, she always came back up swinging. Liz 
we only have small glimpses of Liz's life after high school. We do know that in 1946, 19-year-old Liz joined the military and was shipped off to Germany. Two years later, while stationed overseas, she married a German woman named Marga. Now remember, Liz was a transgender woman, but she hadn't come out yet. So marrying a woman at this time wasn't as monumental as it may sound. To everyone around Liz, she presented as a man and she was treated like one too. Liz and Marga quickly had two kids together. Then, for whatever reason, Liz decided the marriage wasn't for her. She ditched Marga and their kids and returned to the States. Liz likely assumed there'd be no consequences, but there were. At the time, divorce was skyrocketing, but divorced spouses still had to prove one person was at fault for the split or else face consequences. And abandoning your family with no warning definitely looked bad. Liz was charged with desertion of her wife and kids, fined $1,000, and sent to jail. Although luck seemed to be on her side, the sentence was quickly suspended and she was released. We're doing a bit of speculating here, but this was probably a defining moment for Liz. It's likely the first time she realized she could do something morally gray and get away with it. It certainly wouldn't be the last. After Marga came Juanita Hazeman. Again, we don't know the details of where or how Liz and Juanita met. All we know is that in 1954, the pair married. During their marriage, Liz became obsessed with success. She wanted to be rich, and she was willing to use any means necessary. That included some light scamming. Liz's first get-rich idea was to sell knitting machines to local women. She promised that she'd buy all the products they produced. It was supposed to be a two-way partnership. Of course, Liz never held up her side of the bargain. Once she collected her money, she vanished. Because of the con, Liz and Juanita were constantly on the move. Liz built up too much of a reputation, and her business model depended on people not knowing who or where she was. So over the next three years, she and her wife moved 21 times. They went everywhere, including New York, California, Texas, Louisiana, Indiana, and Florida. Until finally, in 1956, Juanita had enough. She left Liz. They'd already had one child, and Juanita was pregnant with the second. But she had no plans of letting Liz get to know her kids. For the next two years, 29-year-old Liz went where the wind took her, and where she could stay out of trouble. She tried her hand at several different business ventures. The most promising was a gig as a vacuum salesperson, which she was good at. She had a knack for sales. But the gig was short-lived. That's because Liz had a habit of pocketing some of her clients' money for herself. And when her boss found out, he fired her. Nothing would deter Liz, though. Like the spider, determined to spin its web, she just kept on going. Whether it was a new job or a new wife, Speaking of which, in the spring of 1958, 31-year-old Liz met another woman who stole her heart. Her name was Betty Sweet. Things moved fast from there. After knowing each other for just four weeks, they got married. They moved in together, and after two months, Betty was pregnant. At first, Betty had been swept up in the romance of it all, 
but after a few months, the sparkle wore off. She realized that Liz wasn't living on the straight and narrow. It was too much for her. By August of that same year, Betty divorced Liz. She later gave birth to their daughter, but like Juanita before her, Betty never gave Liz the chance to meet the child. It seemed Liz was destined to be a serial monogamist, moving from one wife to the next. But then she met Vivian Barrett. In 1959, 32-year-old Liz walked into a diner in Indiana. It would have been like any other day for her, except for the young girl across the counter. 16-year-old Vivian was half Liz's age, which is troubling. Still, they immediately hit it off. Liz was suave and easygoing. She could win anybody over after even a short conversation. Vivian liked that about Liz. In fact, they shared that quality. Vivian was witty, clever, and equally personable. So she leaned in and flirted. She knew exactly what she wanted, and she wanted Liz. It was a match made in heaven. They started dating right away, like so many of Liz's previous relationships, it heated up quickly. It wasn't long before Vivian told her brother that she planned to run away with Liz and get married. For Vivian, it was a chance to start her own real life. So she took it. One night, she and Liz drove off, setting out on their own adventure. However, Vivian's independent streak only lasted so long. A year later, she was pregnant. She didn't know how to raise a child and certainly didn't want to do it without support. So she and Liz moved back to Indiana to be near Vivian's parents. While Vivian was focused on her pregnancy, Liz got to know Vivian's younger brother, 16-year-old Charles Barrett. At first, Charles saw Liz as the older spouse who had whisked his sister away. Soon though, he got swept up in her schemes. You see, Liz was still swindling people out of money, except now she was entering the big leagues. Liz's newest idea was to steal from the banks. In her mind, the plan was simple. First, she'd make some fake IDs, which was easier to do back in those days. Then she got a check writer, a device that allowed her to print official payment slips. She could enter any amount, and it looked like it came from a genuine company. After that, she just had to sign it with the same signature from the fake ID, and voila, she and Charles could walk into any bank and cash the check. It was easy money. Liz didn't feel bad about stealing, as long as it was from the rich. She told Charles, it's so much easier to get 75,000 out of somebody than it is to get a $20 bill. The people that think about $20 bills earned it, and some of these other people didn't. She may have been right that rich people weren't as quick to notice their missing money, but eventually they were caught. After a short-lived high, the scheme came tumbling down, and Liz and Charles found themselves in court. Liz wasn't worried about the charges. She figured she could talk her way out of anything. Sure enough, she did just that. She managed to get both herself and Charles off scot-free. After that, Liz's confidence soared. She stepped up her cons. She'd swindled plenty of people out of their money before, but now she wanted to actually make the money. So she got a printing press and went to work providing for her young wife. 
Unlike Liz's previous wives, Vivian had no problem with what Liz was up to. She watched Liz's process and then joined in. She wanted to be a part of it too. And if they were going to pull this off, Vivian thought they could stand to make some improvements. She wanted the money to look as realistic as possible and suggested they stain the paper with coffee and tea. Sure enough, it did the trick. Now they were cooking. In the spring of 1961, less than a year after getting away with the fake ID scam, 34-year-old Liz started pushing her counterfeit money into the world. She even had a couple of accomplices at her side. It seemed like it was all working out. But as most crimes often do, the scheme unraveled before long. One of the bogus notes got traced back to Liz's associates. That person must have flipped quickly because on August 4, 1961, Secret Service agents came knocking on Liz's door. They arrested her on the spot and charged her with conspiracy and possession of counterfeit currency. She was ordered to be in court the following month and was looking at time behind bars. But Liz had no intention of going to jail. The second she made bail, she and Vivian made a plan. They packed up their daughter, one-year-old Candy, as well as all their belongings. Then they went on the run, and they were gonna keep running for a long, long time. Up next, Liz and her family get used to life on the lam. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Now back to the story. In the fall of 1961, 34-year-old Liz Carmichael was on the run from the feds. She brought her wife, 18-year-old Vivian Barrett, and their daughter, one-year-old Candy, with her. The day they fled, the FBI put out a warrant for Liz's arrest. But Liz outsmarted them. Wherever she went with her family, she made sure they all stayed anonymous. No one was going to throw her behind bars. Over the next couple of years, Liz and Vivian's family grew. They ended up having four more kids together, each with fake identities. 
That way, no matter who they interacted with, no one knew who they really were. They were all unofficially homeschooled, too, so there was no paper trail. Liz trained her kids well. As far as they all knew, this was just the way life was. While other young kids learned to read and write, Liz's family learned how to tell if the FBI was listening in on a phone call. In case you're wondering, it was the soft clicking in the background that gave it away. Most importantly, Liz's family knew how to pack up and leave at a moment's notice. It didn't matter what they were in the middle of or what they had to leave behind. If Liz and Vivian said it was time to go, it was time to go. They never stayed in one place for more than two months. Liz was constantly paranoid, sometimes rightly so, sometimes not, that the FBI would find them. There were many instances where the family packed into the car and made a run for it, but one episode in particular stood out to the kids. They were driving through Indiana in the middle of the night when Liz glanced into the rearview mirror. She did a double take. Someone was following them. Suddenly, Liz started driving like a maniac. She took corners on two wheels and drove 80 miles an hour on city streets. She used every outmaneuvering trick in the book until finally they got away. In the back seat, the kids were terrified. Perhaps for the first time, they realized how dangerous their life really was. Evading authorities and protecting her family weren't the only things on Liz's mind, though. As the years went on and they lived off the grid like a den of thieves, Liz had plenty of time to think. And she had been thinking a lot. There was something she needed to tell Vivian, something Liz had known since she was a kid, but now finally had the words for. In 1966, after seven years of marriage, Liz confessed to Vivian that she was unhappy with the sex she'd been assigned at birth. It didn't feel true to her. The reality was she identified as a woman. Vivian was stunned. She had no idea that Liz had been dealing with this inner turmoil. She loved Liz, but she also wasn't adjusted to the idea of being married to a woman. She needed some space and time to think. So she took two of the kids and went back to Indiana. Unfortunately, Vivian's reaction isn't uncommon. According to the 2011 National Transgender Discrimination Survey, or NTDS, 57% of trans women who came out to their partners had their relationships end. Then, to add insult to injury, 34% were prevented from maintaining relationships with their children. Furthermore, the NTDS study found that trans and gender nonconforming people who are rejected by their families are nearly three times as likely to experience homelessness, 73% more likely to be incarcerated, and 59% more likely to attempt suicide. And if that's what it was like in 2011 when the most recent survey came out, you can only imagine how much worse it was in the 60s. Of course, Liz didn't know these stats, but she knew one thing for sure. She couldn't imagine her life without her wife. So she wrote Vivian a letter. Liz explained that the feelings had always been there. She just hadn't known how to express them. This was who she'd always been, and that didn't mean that she didn't love Vivian. Their relationship might be different now, but Liz would still walk through fire for Vivian and the kids. She loved them with her whole heart. 
After that, Vivian came back. And once she did, there was no turning her away. She became Liz's biggest supporter. She taught her how to wear makeup and women's clothing. The two would even go out to nightclubs together, where Vivian pretended to be Liz's sister-in-law. The next step was to tell the kids. Liz explained what was happening and asked them to start calling her by her new name, Elizabeth, or rather Liz. It was a careful process, but they all made the transition together as a family. While her wife and kids were supportive, Liz was met with all kinds of challenges outside of the home. Remember, this was before the LGBT movement really took off. Stonewall was still a few years away, and at the time, transgender people weren't always welcome, even within the queer community. It was a lot for Liz to take on at once. Not only did she have to deal with daily discrimination, but she also had to figure out how to get the hormones and surgeries she wanted. That can be tough enough today, but in the 60s and 70s, it was especially challenging. There were far fewer resources available to her, and those that were around were hard to track down. So Liz had to figure a lot of it out for herself. First, she went on the hunt for hormones and found them through a veterinarian. It's unclear whether the vet knew the real reason for the hormones or if Liz pretended they were for an animal. Either way, she got them. But she had to bring them home and self-administer the doses herself. After a few years of that, 42-year-old Liz was ready to move on to the next step in her transition. So in 1969, she went to Mexico for breast implant surgery. On top of all this, Liz and her family were still on the run. The FBI wasn't aware of Liz's transition, so that allowed them a certain amount of extra protection. But to be clear, that wasn't the reason Liz transitioned. The FBI problem might have been put on the back burner, but that didn't mean Liz's life was any easier. She really struggled to find her way as a woman. No matter what she did, she couldn't seem to find a job anywhere. She and Vivian needed the income, but there just weren't many openings. At least, not for a six-foot, 220-pound woman. People judged her from the moment they saw her. That was until 1973, when a man named Sam Schlissman gave her a job in real estate in Los Angeles. Sam liked Liz, and he went above and beyond to help her succeed. And when he moved on to a marketing company called USMI, he brought Liz along with him. That's where Liz really flourished. The company was all about sales and marketing, and their business model was right up Liz's alley. Home inventors paid USMI to tell them how to patent, market, and sell their products. The company wasn't actually doing any of the inventing themselves. They just capitalized on the work of those who were. It was the perfect job for Liz. Of course, there were still people who whispered behind her back about her looks, but none of that mattered to her because she was really good at what she did. Liz could sell just about anything. She'd done it in her days of being a con artist, when she hawked sewing machines and vacuum cleaners. So she could certainly do it at USMI, where at least they had real products. Pretty quickly, her success at the company quieted her gossipy co-workers. And then, one day, Liz came across an invention that would change her life forever. To set this up properly, let's take a step back and meet 41-year-old Dale Clift. 
He was a serial inventor who came up with all sorts of engineering feats. The one that's important to our story was his three-wheeled car. You see, Dale loved to motorcycle, but he couldn't ride in the winter with the rain and sleet, so he wanted an in-between option. Not a clunky, heavy car, per se, but not an exposed vehicle. His solution was to make a hybrid three-wheel contraption. As an added bonus, the new machine was designed to be incredibly fuel efficient. In an era where cars only got 8 to 12 miles to the gallon, this car supposedly got 70. At the time, it was one of a kind, and it got a lot of attention. Dale was known to the locals as the wacky inventor driving the three-wheeled car around town. One day, a man approached Dale and offered to set him up with a salesperson from USMI, someone who could actually get the car manufactured. Dale was intrigued by the idea and agreed to a meeting. That person poised to make Dale's dreams come true was none other than Liz. In 1973, Liz met with Dale and heard his pitch. As he spoke, Liz's eyes lit up. She could see the three-wheeled vehicle becoming the best-selling car in the U.S. That was exactly what Dale wanted, so he signed the papers. He would get royalties from his invention, and in exchange, Liz was now the owner of the three-wheeled prototype. That left her free to mass-produce it. In his honor, she named it the Dale. Liz had big dreams for her new product, but she wasn't about to just hand it over to USMI on a silver platter. She didn't want them getting their grubby hands on her discovery. Instead, she wondered what it would look like if she went out on her own. Thus, the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation was born. And just like that, Liz was the CEO of her very own company. She wasn't going to settle for anything less than revolutionary either. This wasn't some business run out of a basement. She had every intention of building the biggest automobile manufacturing company in the world. Bigger than Ford, Chrysler, and General Motors combined. Now she just had to prove her potential to the rest of the world. And prove it, she would. Up next, Liz Carmichael becomes a household name. Now back to the story. In 1973, 46-year-old Liz Carmichael left her marketing job and founded the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation to manufacture and sell the three-wheeled car, the Dale. Liz's company sprung up seemingly overnight. First, she rented offices on Ventura Boulevard in Los Angeles. Then she hired a team of engineers who got to work making the Dale a reality. Liz was a born leader. She inspired the people who worked for her. They came from all over and bought into her dream, even if it was a little bit out there. Dale Clift, the original inventor of the Dale, had built a prototype, but his version looked more like a dune buggy than a real car. Liz wanted to make the Dale into something that could compete with any other vehicle on the road. So she hired a designer to draw up some new concepts, and they had their work cut out for them. Even before the design was finalized, Liz was out in the world making promises, big ones. She touted the car for being three things, cheap, 
fuel-efficient, and safe. It would cost less than $2,000, get incredible gas mileage, and would never flip over. That last part wasn't a typical promise from car manufacturers, but neither were three-wheeled cars. However, it was one thing to say all that, but another thing entirely to engineer it. Her team had to make the car as light as possible to improve its fuel efficiency, but that made the car easier to flip. It was a difficult balance to strike. While her engineers got to work behind closed doors, Liz was out in public drumming up business. Her first stop was getting the Dale into the LA Auto Show, which she did. The bright yellow concept car sat up on the dais for everyone to see, and it attracted tons of attention. A salesman talked it up to the audience. This car of the future could be yours for the small fee of $1,969. You just couldn't bring it home right away. It wasn't ready yet. But Liz promised it would be soon, and people couldn't sign up fast enough. For all the attention the Dale received, Liz got even more. She was a woman running her own business in a time when that was incredibly rare. Not to mention she was a personality. She was always spouting off outrageous sound bites that made for great headlines. For example, she told the press, I don't care about the public. I only care about money. I'm not here for the good of the people. I'm here for the good of Liz Carmichael. In another interview, she said, we're going to shock General Motors, Ford, and the rest of them right out of their big, overstuffed seats. These all seemed like big claims from someone who seemingly came from nowhere. You'd think people would do their due diligence and look into Liz a bit more. But according to Chelsea Bins, an assistant professor of criminal justice, running a background check would have been tedious back then. You'd have to file for documentation, go through a very long process, and even then, you might not get everything you needed to know. So it made sense that no one bothered. Everyone took Liz at her word. And as a result, she was put on a pedestal as a prime example of what women could accomplish. But Liz knew it would all come crashing down if anyone learned the truth. She could never share her real identity. As far as anyone outside her family knew, she was a widowed mother of five, and Vivian was her sister-in-law, who worked as a secretary at the company. In fact, Liz had a whole made-up backstory she parroted to the media whenever she was interviewed. She said that she'd met her husband, Jim, while they were both studying at Ohio State University. She'd graduated there with a mechanical engineering degree, and Jim had gone on to work for NASA. Sadly, Jim had a heart attack in 1966. After his death, Liz had packed up her five kids and her sister-in-law, Vivian, and headed out to California. That's where she stumbled upon the Dale. Of course, none of this was true, but Liz knew the power of a good story. There's actual science to back up this theory, too. Dr. Paul J. Zak found that when we're absorbed with a particularly emotional narrative, the brain produces oxytocin. That's the neurochemical that fires off when we feel trust or kindness. A good story can make us feel empathy towards someone. That's a pretty obvious point. But even more than that, it can actually produce a sense of trust. When we know someone's history, we're much more likely to trust them. 
Liz took advantage of all those tugging heartstrings. She had to, because her personal history wasn't the only thing she was making up. Despite all her claims, she still hadn't gotten the Dale prototype to actually work. She was selling pre-orders for the cars like no one's business, but there was still no running model. Unbeknownst to the rest of the world, Liz was a fraud. There was one person who wasn't swept up in the buzz of Liz Carmichael. That person being Dick Carlson. He worked as a presenter on the KABC Los Angeles news station, and there was something about Liz's story that he just wasn't buying. You could say it was a journalist's intuition, because he was right. There was something Liz wasn't telling the world. At the same time, Carlson wasn't motivated by entirely altruistic journalistic morals. There was a more personal, bigoted angle, too. The truth was, he didn't like Liz because he thought she looked too much like a man. And Carlson believed it was his duty to take her down. Carlson started by interviewing Liz herself. Then, unlike the journalists who came before him, he went through the tedious process of fact-checking all her claims. And he found that things didn't add up. Carlson didn't have the answers he wanted yet, but he kept on digging. Meanwhile, he criticized Liz and the Dale on air, which did plenty of damage on its own. Liz couldn't have people looking too closely at her business, mainly because Carlson was kind of right on at least one point. Production of the Dale wasn't going as well as Liz claimed. To the public, Liz still insisted that the cars would be in production no later than June 1, 1975, and that there would be 88,000 completed cars by the year's end. But June 1975 was barely more than six months away, and behind closed doors, in the garages where the Dale was being constructed, that timeline seemed impossible. Needless to say, everyone was on edge, and no one more so than Liz. It didn't help that she'd scheduled a test drive demonstration before she even knew whether the car would actually work. But once the demo was on the books, Liz couldn't reschedule. Japanese investors were flying in to see the car they were interested in backing. If she canceled, it would be as good as admitting she'd failed, which simply wasn't an option. Not for Liz. So on New Year's Eve 1974, she gathered in a parking lot with her investors and awaited the Dales demo drive. They stood to the side and waited with bated breath. Was the three-wheeled car really all it was cracked up to be? However, not everyone present wanted the Dale to succeed. One of her engineers, John Griffiths, felt the car was unsafe for the public. And while most of her employees might have been under the Liz Carmichael spell, John certainly wasn't. He didn't care what the consequences were. He had to show everyone watching that the car simply wasn't ready. So John volunteered to be the test driver. With all eyes on him, he got into the Dale, turned it on, and started driving. From the sidelines, Liz tensed. She thought about all the money at stake, not to mention her reputation. This was the make-or-break moment. At first, it seemed to be going well. The car was picking up speed and driving smoothly. It even climbed up to 40 miles an hour. But then, John slammed on the brakes and turned at a hard 90-degree angle. 
the car went into the air, flipped, then landed on its side. In the stunned silence following the crash, Liz was furious. She demanded her engineers fix the issue, but it was already too late. Her prospective investors had seen the Dale fail miserably. They no longer had any interest in giving her their money. And to make it all even worse, Dick Carlson was spying on the scene from across the street. He watched the whole thing go down through binoculars. After the epic failure, he waited patiently for everyone to clear out. When they did, he noticed a man dressed in a white lab coat get into his car and drive away. Carlson took a chance and followed the man. They ended up in a bar where Carlson approached the man, who we'll call Mark. Carlson introduced himself and started asking questions. It turned out Mark worked for Liz as a salesman. Apparently, the salespeople wore white lab coats and used automotive jargon while talking to customers to make them seem more legitimate than they really were. This was exactly the kicker Carlson had been looking for proof that there was fraudulent behavior within the 20th Century Motor Corporation. The pair talked all night until eventually, Carlson convinced Mark to help him out. The reporter wanted to do a more in-depth background check on Liz, but to do that, he needed her fingerprints. Carlson gave Mark his instructions, then sent him off. Sometime shortly after that meeting, Mark managed to swipe a drinking glass that Liz had used. Then he handed it off to Carlson. The reporter couldn't believe his luck. He brought the glass to a contact in the LAPD and had him lift the prints off of it. Now he just had to wait for the background check to come back. Finally, Carlson would have the answer to the question he'd been after. Who exactly was Liz Carmichael? And all the while, Liz was back at company headquarters, desperately trying to recover from the loss of her investors. It felt like the end of the world. But she had no idea how much worse it was about to get. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, where Liz is exposed and forced to go on the run again. For more information on Liz Carmichael, amongst the many sources we used, we found HBO's documentary series, The Lady and the Dale, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 